you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favourable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, it is a pleasure to be with you for this great series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, As we come to this text, why don't we pray that the Lord will help us, particularly me, understand and explain what we're looking at. Our Heavenly Lord, be with us now as we continue our journey into this magnificent letter of your Apostle. We pray that the words on the page would be illuminated in our minds and become active in our hearts and into our hands, so that we would know God and serve Him better. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. 
Well, it's good to be uh, with you. And yeah, I was, just, I was very happy when I heard you doing a series on Second Corinthians. The Corinthian letters, one or two Corinthians, uh, the, the, the very dense letters. Paul is dealing with a lot of issues in these letters. I mean, when I, when I think of all the churches that Paul was involved in, I, I divide them up into good, bad, and ugly. Okay, there was the good, which is the Philippians. You know, the churches Paul is always giving thanks for. There was the bad, the Galatians. They had been naughty. And then there was the Corinthians. They, they were just one drama after another. And I mean, if you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you can see all the issues Paul's dealing with. And now in 2 Corinthians, he's got a whole bunch of issues. He seems to be temporarily estranged from them. He wants to be reconciled to them. People are throwing some shade at Paul, saying, well, he's not really that good. And some interlopers have turned up and they're dissing Paul as well. And we get to this section of the letter where Paul is basically doing uh, a, a couple of things. I mean, he wants, he wants to be reconciled to the Corinthians. He knows he's, he's, he's having a difficult relationship with them. And he, he's also very worried that the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians are more like Corinth and less Christian than they really need to be. And what Paul wants to do, he wants to kind of, you know, stand up and validate his apostolic credentials and he wants them to live lives of holiness in an unholy world. So let's see what Paul does first up. We look at the first verses of this passage. We'll see Paul is going to defend his apostolic integrity. I mean, he begins off by talking about himself as a, as a co-worker. He doesn't want the Corinthians to receive God's grace in vain. Now is the day of salvation. But then he goes on to discuss the very nature of his ministry. And Paul is defending his ministry, not because he's, you know, incredibly over-defensive. He, he's doing this because if people can undermine his, his ministry, then they can undermine his message. The criticism of his apostolic ministry could be taken as a discrediting of his apostolic gospel. So Paul lists his hardships, his sufferings, his toil, the turmoil he goes through. And he says, look, they do not indicate my unworthiness nor do they show his dishonored estate. Rather, they are the very credentials that he has. It goes to show that, that, that Paul is, is not a flake. He's just not in there till it gets hard. He is definitely in this for the long haul. He is the one who talks the talk because he walks the walk. And you can see, if you look at verses 3 and following, you can see the various struggles that Paul has. He talks about what he has had to endure Across the course of his ministry, he talks about troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleeplessness, hunger. I mean, this, this is hard. This is more than your average day at the office. He talks about then what he exercises. You know, it, it doesn't make him bitter or twisted or nasty. He says rather he strives to have purity understanding, patience, kindness, sincere love, truthfulness, righteousness, and divine power working through him. Paul is saying, look, you know, what I've been through shows that I have the endurance to see it through the end. And he has a certain degree of moral excellence. But it's not just about look at me how good I am because I've survived all this. 
What, what Paul wants to highlight is, these, is this, I would call it the reversals of grace. How God takes these difficulties, these tragedies, the, these hardships, and he brings goodness, love, and redemption through them. Look in particular at verses 8 and following. Uh, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Now this is more than, you know, let's look on the bright side of life. This is more than maybe the cup is, is half full rather than half empty Paul is saying even in these things which seem to be dishonorable which indicate his weakness and unworthiness that is where God seems to be operating because he has experienced God's grace at the very points the very moments he was seemingly at his lowest and Paul can say he is up for the struggle not because of his own greatness. He may not be respected, but he is resilient. He may not be furnished with accolades, but he is faithful in his ministry. So for the Corinthians, rather than look down on him, question his motives, compare him with other great speakers or teachers, the Corinthians should embrace him as their father, their, their teacher and their partner in the things that pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But what does that mean for us? Most of us are not called to a type of apostolic ministry where we're going to imprison, experience imprisonments, beatings, and those type of hardships. But we're going to have other things. You know, a while ago I was, I was going to go back to my old high school and deliver the graduation address. And I was, I was terrified. I never got to do it because of COVID. But I actually looked up what are the top graduation address topics. Number one top graduation address topic is follow your dreams. That's the number one address topic. And I remember when I was 17, what were my dreams? I had two dreams. One, be a world kickboxing champion. And number two, write musicals with Andrew Lloyd Webber. It would have been cool if I could have like combined them, you know, kickboxer, the musical, you know, you were so dead, I'm going to kick you in the head. I mean, it practically writes itself. But dreams change over the course of your life. And seven, the dreams of 17-year-old Mike are very different to the dreams of 49-year-old Mike. So I, I wouldn't do that. I could have done, you know, the second most popular one is be true to yourself. Okay. Now, a friend of mine, Brian Rosner, has written a whole book on this. Why it's actually not that good. It it's really is a recipe for being a narcissist, to be honest. I, I, it's, it's not the best kind of thing. But if I had to go back and speak to some high school students or anyone, I, I, leaning kind of what on Paul says here, my advice would be this. Do hard things. The path to greatness runs through the passage of hardship, adversity, and toil. Paul's life was hard. His mission was hard. Because mission inevitably brings opposition. 
there's a New Testament scholar called David Garland. Cracking good chap. I love what he says. He says, a ministry of reconciliation requires that one must go to those who are unreconciled and impenitent. To claim those claimed by Satan. To march boldly into the dens of vice, ignorance and devilry. It is dangerous work as Christ's crucifixion reveals. The demonic powers do not lie down weakly in submission when the gospel is preached. But they rise up and lash out viciously in a desperate attempt to... To prevent it from taking hold. That means just like Paul. We have to do hard things to God. And people who do hard things. Change their churches. They change their cities. They change the world. But I've got to give you a warning. There is no risk assessment matrix. No financial planner. No lifestyle coach. Who's going to tell you to quit your job. To become a youth minister. To sell your house and move to Wagga Wagga to go and work with university students. To become a digital nomad, move to Thailand so you can help with combating the sex trafficking industry. Now, no one's going to, in their right mind, say this is a good career move or a good financial move for you. But there's that old saying, isn't there? Ships are safe in the harbour. But that is not what they're for. You know, look, I, I understand the idea. I mean, I want to live my life, do 45 years of successful adulting, keep myself alive, pay off a mortgage, possibly raise some children, keep them alive, and say, I survived for 75 years. Okay, I did it. Okay. But is that all you're wanting to achieve in life? Like literally survive and maybe had a, a few laughs along the way? I mean, you can dedicate all your life, but... For Christians, we're called to something better. We're called to some degree of adversity to build for the kingdom. You know, what are your list of hardships? What are the list of enemies you've racked up building for the kingdom? You don't want to live your life and have regret at the end of it. But to, go to, to, to countenance the prospect of embracing that is, is difficult. I mean, I, I like comfort. I like security. I like knowing I'm going to have a roof over my head next week. But we can do as Paul does, and that is put our faith where our fear is. Put our faith where our fear is. That means we have to balance security with responsibility. Take risks with resolve and resilience because the reward is very great. We're serving a great God. So in your life, do hard things for God. At whatever stage of life you're at, whether you're a student or a retiree, wherever you are, whatever your abilities, you can do hard things to God. Do the things they say cannot be done. If you want to change the world, if you want to build for the kingdom, then you have to do hard things. That's, that's, that's what I learned from the example of Paul. But Paul doesn't just talk about his own hardships and what he's been through as the proof of his credentials. Uh, no, he kind of changed tack kind of radically when you get to verses 14 and what follows. And what Paul is saying here is that uh, holiness and a world of idols, of sin, these things don't be mixed. And let's be honest, we all know certain things that should not be mixed together. Acid and a base. That leads to a big kaboombalunga. Bleach and ammonia. You don't want to breathe that in. Grapefruit and medicine. Doesn't work in your stomach. Uh, another one, bathtubs and toasters. 
Uh, one, one I learned from my brother, uh, boiling egg and microwave. You can't boil an egg in the microwave. Uh, Collingwood and Carlton, they never seem to play well together. Very, very, very angry people, angry people. Uh, for young people, especially, milk and Red Bull. That's, and the number one thing should never be mixed together, caramel and salt in chocolate. No, no, it's not even an argument. It's not even an argument. I don't think it works. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that holy things, like God's holy people, do not go together with things such as idolatry. Those things do not belong together. Now, this is where we need to embrace a little bit of cultural distance. Okay, We've got to remember that in the ancient world, uh, idols were everywhere. Okay, Now, you know, unless you've been to somewhere like, I don't know, India, Bali, Thailand... Uh, or you know, or the body shop. Um, <laughs> you can't really appreciate what what, it, what it's like to go through a world and it's just saturated with idols. Imagine a city filled with idols and temples, the same way Melbourne is filled with coffee shops. Okay, now I'm not saying coffee is an idol, but that would explain a lot. But, but the ancient world, it was, there was temples and shrines everywhere. In fact, a historian, Keith Hop, Hopkins, he explains what it would be like for two tr- time travelers to go down to ancient Rome and see this God-saturated city. He says this, There were temples and gods and humans praying to them all over the place. At the entrance to the town, at the entrance to the forum, there were altars at the crossroads. Gods in, in the niches as you went along with passers-by just ca- casually blowing kisses at them with their hands to a statue of a god in a wall. And of course, in the forum, the ceremonial center of the town, there were temples, altars, gods, heroes, just about everywhere we looked. Our end of the square was filled by the grand temple to Jupiter with Vesuvius magnificently snow-capped behind, and all the rest of the buildings looked as though they could be temples too. Or to quote another historian, Robin Lane Fox, he said, The gods were not simply up in heaven, rather they were all around. In the storm, in sickness, in battle, in the public squares, in dreams, in stories. Ancient cities, I mean the people there, they did not believe in gods. They spoke of having gods in the same way you might have a roundabout, a lake, or a cafe. Now in, in, in this world saturated with gods... Uh, Paul saying, look, you, you, you can't go into that. You, you, can't, you, you can't worship and have any participation in this idolatry. And then the Bible's got a lot to say about idolatry. You can go all the way back, uh, deep into the Old Testament. You've got... The, gold, you know, the, the golden calf incident when the, the Israelite, the Hebrews start worshipping this golden calf as their deliverer. You've got the first commandment about worshipping anything other than God. In Isaiah 44, uh, there's, there's this very ironic, jarring critique where Isaiah says, I mean, what kind of an idiot cuts down a tree, half of it he uses for firewood, and another bit of it he makes a god out of? I mean, you've got that type of argument. And, and, and there's a real duality in Paul here. On the one hand, Paul can say, look, I Idols are nothing, so look, when it comes to idol food, you know, don't ask, don't tell. As long as no one's getting offended by it, meat is meat, you know, everything belongs to the Lord. But when it comes to actually going into a temple or, having the, or, or going into these places or doing anything tainted with idolatry, Paul says you should, you should swim away from it like you're swimming away from a great white shark, which is very, very fast. So, so what is wrong with idols? 
Well, idols, they rob God of his right for worship. Idols mean worshipping created things rather than the creator of all things. Idols embody the demonic darknesses from which we need deliverance. Idols cannot compare with the infinite, invisible and incomprehensible God. And and this is why too, people become what they worship. Power, sex, death, greed, violence, hate, whatever. You become what you worship. That's why we don't worship idols. We become that. Now on the back of that, Paul does add a plethora of Old Testament quotes that focus on God's presence with his people and why people must avoid the dehumanizing contamination of idols and instead worship God in purity of heart and purity of spirit. This is why Paul gets to his conclusion in 7.1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. But we're not living in ancient Rome or ancient Corinth, so what, what do we have to be worried about when it comes to idols? What are the idols of our age that we should flee from and avoid? I mean, I would say here there are individual idols and then there are cultural idols. Individual idols are things which are not necessarily bad, but in wrong proportion, they can be either consuming in an unhealthy way or they can disorder your desires and per- pervert your affections for God. Greed, career can be an idol, ministry, sex, family. Many of these things can be an idol if they consume and our affections to the point that they displace God. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Or I I like how A.W. Pink put it. He said, an idol is anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless itself, yet if it absorbs me, if it is given the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be my business, a loved one, or my service for Christ. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord's ruling me in a practical way is an idol. Whatever there are of the idols in your world, in your heart, you must tear them down. And here's, here's here's, here's, I think, the takeaway thought. You need to internalize some iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is the, is the breaking of idols. We need to break the idols which would seduce us and tempt us away from the satisfying, the infinite goodness of God as he is towards us in Christ and the Spirit. Embrace some iconoclasm in your person. But what about, what about public idols? What are the public idols of our age? This one's a little bit harder because it requires some cultural hermeneutics. I mean, what what are the idols? Things, what what are the things that you're expected to worship and no one is allowed to disrespect? I mean, that's how I think you really know it's a public idol. People just assume it's worthy of our adoration and you're not allowed to speak against it. That's, That's the definition of a false god. I would say, and just like the ancient world, I would say sex is probably the biggest idol of all. 
Okay, uh, there's always been gods of sex, fertility cults, orgiastic cults, um, the worship of pleasure and devotion. Uh, sex may not have a shrine or statue in every corner, but I mean, sex seems to be everywhere. We, we live in a sex saturated world. If I had to sum up the, the creed of the sex gods, I would say there is no God but sex and Pornhub is her prophet. That is the way I would put it. And in fact, it's so much so that everyone's identity almost gets reduced to their sexuality. Basically, what now counts as human identity is sexual desire plus personality. I mean, that is the sum of who you are. So even even our own personhood is being reduced to this matter of sexual orientation. And if you do not idolize the sex is all to I am, that the... uh, Sex is the single greatest thing to be worshipped in the world. If you don't worship, then people will think there is something wrong with you. But that's not what we are. Sex is a, is a good thing. But when a good thing is distorted or put in its wrong place, it becomes an idol. I would say the other public idols of our age are celebrities. Celebrities are mobile and living idols with superhuman talent and even often attire themselves uh, with, with this kind of divine-like qualities. Um, you know, I, I googled idols and I was expecting something like, you know, pictures of a Hindu shrine, maybe Artemis of the Ephesians. I, I googled idols and I found a thing called K-pop, which then led to a thing, what is K-pop? Oh, that was a rabbit hole I went down, my friends. That was a deep rabbit hole. Oh, boy. Uh, but, but celebrities are some of the biggest idols of our age. I mean, I thought it was very ironic a few years ago when you know, you know, the TV show Australian Idol, the people who made the final had to sign a contract that they would not talk about God and religion on the show. Okay. Now, but here's the thing: an idol is very, na- by, by its very nature, a religious thingy. Okay. So it, it's actually, I mean, it's based around a kind of religious metaphor. Now, you could say they don't want the people, you know, saying things that might potentially uh, offend other people when they talk about God or anything like that. But I would be prepared to argue that the main reason they didn't want them mentioning God or religion is because the contestants themselves are meant to be the gods. They're, the men, they're meant to be the ones that, that, that we revere. You know, not just sense appreciate their talent, but have almost like a, a, a religious frenzy of devotion towards them. Because that is what makes a very, very good show. If you are what you worship, then we must be careful to prune our lives of those idols that are manufactured in our heart or whatever the cultural idols are around us. Let's bring this passage to a close. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, If you asked someone from the marketing department to sell 2 Corinthians 6 to a bunch of Melbourneites, I think they would say it is a pretty hard sell. Because what Paul is saying is you need in your life more hardship and more holiness. 
that, which is kind of like the opposite of everything people will try sell. Because I don't know about you, I prefer things in my life that are easy and allow me to gratify my desires. I mean, all marketing is about that. You know, I'm going to make your life easier and you can have more of the things that you want. Paul's saying, he's saying the opposite of that. He's saying what you need, if you want a Godward life, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to change the world around you, then you need to embrace hardship and holiness. Now, note this, and I think this is important. Hardship without holiness will make you a hard-hearted, cynical bully. If you simply have hardship in your life, but you don't add to that the nature of God, the perfections of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, if you don't add it, you will simply become embittered by your hardships. Also, it's not holiness without hardship. That will make you puritanical, judgmental, a hyper-pious religious person, a hypocrite. Because if you look down on others for how they've negotiated life while you have remained aloof and free from the misfortunes and travails of life, that will make you a hypocrite. We're called to both. We're called to do hard things and live holy lives. If we want to think about how to do that, we can look at some of the great examples we have. We have the example of Paul and that brother knew hardship. But we can also look to other people as well. A few days ago, we had the passing of Tim Keller, who's been one of the, uh, I think, best evangelical leaders of our generation. He is one who did hard things planning a church in what was one of the most irreligious cities in America, trying to be holy, having to negotiate different disagreements in his negotiation, having critics on the left and the right, and always trying to be generous and kind to others. That's difficult. My dear friends, brothers and sisters, Go forth this week, resolving yourself to do hard things for God. And as you do that, to embrace the holiness that Paul tells us. Not to worship the idols, but to put them away. And to worship the Lord your God only. And we, we pray this now, that we would do such things for our great God, that we would worship him in holiness, in love, and in peace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.